Bell from the team of Brass. I'm Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance is the managing editor of Fangraphs. His name is Dave Cameron. And in uh, what follows, as he does each week, Dave Cameron here endeavors to analyze all baseball. Of particular note this week, there has been a week of baseball, approximately, which means there is a week of baseball data. One wants to know, is that a week, is that a, is that worthless data? Is there any worth to it? Well, it depends. Dave Cameron discusses a brief history of sample sizes and sample size disclaimers. Perhaps more appropriately to say that he discusses the disclaimers part of it. What ought and what ought we not be regarding as uh, real uh, over the past week or so? Is Adrian Gonzalez's performance, for example, is that significant? And uh, look at uh, Masahiro Tanaka. What do his weak performances say about what we can expect from him in uh, the future this season, near and far? Both related and not, uh, we discuss how certain metrics like BABIP and home run rate and left on base percentage might be indicators for pitchers of injury. We also look at how BABIP, a good or a bad BABIP, might be an indicator of health for a batter, like Miguel Cabrera, for example, who's hitting quite well over the first week of the season. We also, at some point, find our way to this sentence. This is Dave Cameron either discussing sample sizes and their reliability or reading from a Raymond Carver short story, You Decide. And at some point, you know, the old stairs were useless and they fall apart and, uh, you know, the fact that you climbed them doesn't matter anymore. It's Fangraphs Audio. It features managing editor Dave Cameron and it begins right now. Said. No, yeah, no, it's fine. No, it's fine. I was on mute, and you said, "Oh, can we make that a permanent option?" <clears throat> so you didn't record my jab, so that you could then record yourself saying my jab. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> uh, all right, let's do let's do baseball conversation. Okay. Um, let's see. You have well, you just published this afternoon, so why don't we get into it? Uh, the uh, questions of small samples. I think it actually dovetails nicely with the thing you wrote this afternoon, which doesn't have to do with a obscure minor leaguer with no future. Yeah, shockingly, right? We yeah. can do, I can get to that later, though. I think tomorrow I'll be publishing something on college players, though, so uh, we can handle can handle right. that then. T- today you wrote about someone who people might care about, which ties into the small sample size issue, which uh, you know is a nice coincidence. Right, and as you point out, it is not uncommon. Certainly, historically, has not been uncommon. F- um, for one to dismiss a performance because, uh, in, in, with the, just the you know the phrase small sample size, uh, but then but then also you're right it leads to this notion of well when does this when does the sample size quit being small and then become uh, authentic like an uh, an acceptable sample size? There's not a magic moment really. Yeah, I think that's one of the problems with this like small sample size dogma that the statistical community has. Uh, probably rightfully so, pushed for, you know, I don't know, 20 years or something, because the national media and broadcasters are terrible about, you know, this pitcher's, uh, you know, uh, struck out five guys in the start of last week, so therefore he's on a roll, or this guy's three for six career against this pitcher, or, you know, they, they drag up a lot of just completely useless and, and, uh, meaningless numbers and try to trot them out as analysis. And so as a pushback, the analytical community, uh, showed that those numbers were useless. And said, you know, stop using these. And, and the media has not stopped, but they've maybe, maybe used them a little less, maybe. Uh, I'm not actually sure the, the war on sample sizes worked, but, uh, and I think the, 
negative side of that is that uh, a generation of fans have been raised to essentially believe that small samples have no meaning or no value, and, and uh, there's kind of this line of demarcation at which a, a sample transforms out of being small and into something useful, uh, which is just not true. I mean, there's just, you know, even if you think about it logically, uh, there's just not a point at which if you add one more plate appearance or one more inning pitched or one more pitch, that everything that came before it now is validated uh, when it was invalid beforehand. That's just not how things work in life. Right, and and I will say that, uh, and as you said in your post, that Russell Carlton added um, uh, mostly positives to this conversation. Yeah. Uh, and he he actually, a, I mean, he added something to the conversation that that, and the interpretation is mostly positive, except also when it's negative. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, certainly not to cast aspersions at Russell. Uh, I, and I think, you know, people use data incorrectly all the time. Right, and I not think Russell's taken pains to, to... to... Yeah, right. He's done work to try and tell people to stop doing this as well because uh, he's seen people misusing his you know, stabilization points and, and taking them and saying, okay, 60 plate appearances or 75 plate appearances or 100 innings or whatever the number is. Now we have all the data we need. We can ignore. We don't have to regress to the mean. We have everything. But at 99 innings, we have nothing, which is just not true. Um, and so, yeah, right, nothing against Russell, uh, nothing against his work, which was very useful, uh, and is, uh, kind of helps show the different, uh, places at which you can start to, like, put more emphasis on strikeout rate than you can on, you know, batting average on balls in play or, uh, you know, homer to fly ball ratio, things like that. So the relative differences between the numbers is pretty interesting. Uh, but I do think that, you know, people look at those, and even the term stabilization rate, I think, gives a, a false sense of, of stabilization, like these numbers are stable going forward, which is not true. It's it's not how this works. It's essentially just a mathematical tool referring back to how much you have to regress at that point. Um, and you know, I think people don't like regressing to the mean. It's not something that a lot of people know how to do or want to do. And so, um, I think. So, what does that just mean? If you reach a stabilization point, then you have to regress. Is it fifty or thirty percent? Fifty percent. Yeah. Okay, I mean, right. so yeah, Russell uses the the point seven uh, R uh, correlation. Uh, Tom Tango has argued with Russell, uh, for years and years and years, uh, about where the point should be, and he uses slightly different numbers. But the concept is basically the same. It's like, there's a, a, a rate at which, or a line at which, at that point, you then only have to regress halfway back to the mean, uh, from the, what your current number is. Uh, and so something like strikeout rate, or velocity, or one of these numbers that stabilizes very quickly, you actually don't need a huge sample. You can do it in 50 plate appearances or 100 plate appearances and get some useful information. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you don't have to regress at all. So, so if if uh, I forget the precise numbers right now, but we'll take uh, I think strikeout rate <clears throat> uh, maybe for pitchers and batters. I think it stabilizes something like 60 plate appearances. Yeah. So you said right. that's the that's the that's the point at which you regress halfway. Does that mean at 120 plate appearances that um, that now you definitely know? No, absolutely not. Okay. So, uh, right, it's not that you regress halfway at 60 and then you regress the other half of the way at 120. Uh, essentially, and I tried to use the, the stairs versus elevator analogy this morning, is you basically just look at it like every little piece of information adds more, like a slight step up towards ultimate knowledge, and you're just, you know, it's an, an, a never-ending uh, stair climb. And at some point, you know, the old stairs were useless and they fall apart, and, uh, you know, the fact that you climbed them doesn't matter anymore. Uh, so you have this um, kind of continual climb toward knowledge, uh, and as you take one step forward, you have slightly more information or slightly more knowledge than you had before. But you, you realistically, uh, with baseball data, because of 
kind of the small spread in talent between players. Players are mostly the same. I mean, you know, there's some are better than others, but it's not basketball where Michael Jordan is playing in the same league as, you know, uh, Detlef Schrempf or, you know, uh, Manute Bowl or something like that. The talent levels are tremendously different. Uh, you, uh, you need years and years and years of, of data on almost every stat to really draw some strong conclusions. Uh, but as you go along the way, you can start to draw those conclusions earlier, uh, but you can't really, you know, be firm with them until you have, uh, you know, thousands of plate appearances in most cases. Right. I will say, uh, and especially I would like to speak directly to our German listeners, Detlef Schrempf was a fantastic NBA player. I, I hated Detlef Schrempf. Yeah, okay. He was everything wrong about a good basketball team. A 6'10 guy who did, wouldn't play inside. He didn't rebound. He wasn't a good defender. He just stood outside and shot threes, and he was 6'10 and drove me insane. Yeah, well, I'm sure. You know what? You need to go have a conversation with your youthful version. The youthful version of yourself. Detlef Schrempf was a saint. No. Uh, wait, didn't no. he play for your Sonics at one point? Or was he, he a, yeah, well, in the mid-90s when the Sonics were awesome and yeah. trying to knock off Michael Jordan and the Bulls, who were basically unbeatable, one of the reasons that the Bulls kept winning is because Detlef Schrempf couldn't guard anyone on the Bulls. Well, he might not have been a great defender. Wait, didn't you? Didn't, didn't those Sonics teams also have Sam Perkins? Yeah, same guy. Same, same thing. Same, yeah, guy. same thing. George Carl loved these, like, 6'10", 6'11", three-point shooters who wouldn't rebound, and they all drove me nuts. Yeah, well, they're, you know, they're... It, that's a, not a player that's disappeared at all. But of course, a lot of guys who with that same skill, I mean, like Kevin Durant is that tall, or even a little taller maybe, but he also has, uh, athleticism. Guard, yeah, guard type handle athleticism. Yeah, Sam, Sam Perkins not athletic. Yeah, right. What do they call him? The, when they, the big, big smooth. Big smooth. Big yeah, smooth. It's a, it's a pretty great nickname. It's a great, it's a good, yeah. Yeah. Um, um, okay, so, so we have these situations. Uh, so what, I mean, what of the things that have happened so far this year? You brought up the case of Adrian Gonzalez. But I think that one important uh, um, aspect of this, right, is to make the point that there are certain metrics which are becoming stable m- more quickly. So that, yeah, so you, you, don't, you don't quote triple slash lines, you know, a week into the season or two weeks into the season. But at the same time, uh, well, velocity is probably the, the quickest one to become reliable, right? You say, well, he threw a fastball at 96 miles per hour. If someone throws a fastball at 96 miles per hour, they could probably throw another fastball at 96 miles per hour. That's like a, that's very much tied to a physical tool. Yeah, I think uh, Jeff Zimmerman, or uh, I believe it was Zimmerman, but maybe it was someone else, uh, actually reported that you can uh, reasonably project velocity with only the last pitch. Like the last <laughs> pitch that they threw is a reasonable projection for the velocity of the next <laughs> same type of pitch. I mean, if they're a curveball, it's not going to tell you. But you literally need men of one to do an okay projection on their next velocity. Uh, and it, once you get to, like, 15 or 20, you're good. Like, everything beyond that is not that useful. I right. mean, so there are some instances where, like, there's calibration problems, and you do need to account for weather. Early in the year, guys' velocities are down. Like, you need to do some adjustments. But for the most part, yeah, if a guy throws 96, you can be pretty sure he throws hard. Right, because you and I... We might we accidentally – what's that? We can't throw names. We can't do that, right. And if yeah. we were batting, if we had enough plate appearances, right. it's possible that we would accidentally get a hit. Yeah. Um, but we wouldn't accidentally ever throw 96 miles per hour. It's just not possible. So do yeah. you think that's a good way to think about it is you think about the degree of control that the player uh, the player concerned has over this particular thing? Because that's the thing, right, with like, with like batting average, a player – a player can put a ball into play, which, first of all, necessitates that he makes contact. Yep. And so you figure, well, 
his ability to make contact, that probably becomes more, and in fact it does become more, more reliable than his batting average. But then it has to, it goes out into a field where there are people trying to field it and get him out. Yep. And that takes a long time because it depends on, you know, eight, nine other guys. Yeah, the number of variables absolutely has a significant impact on how how many trials you need in order to uh, come up with a reasonable conclusion. So, like, velocity, there's one variable. The guy and his ability to, like, be healthy enough to, you know, complete a throwing motion. Basically, that's all there is. Nothing else matters. Uh, with, you know, any kind of result on the field, you've got the pitcher and the hitter and the catcher and the umpire and the field and the weather and, like, you know, all the defenders. You've got all these variables that can have an impact on how far the ball flies and who catches it and whether it's caught or whether it falls in. So those things just have so many more uh, potential sources of noise that it takes a much longer time to find the signal. When you're looking at something like swing rate, uh, that has, you know, a few variables and the pitcher matters, right? You're going to, you know, chase fewer pitches against a guy who can't throw strikes. Uh, but it doesn't matter as much as it does for, like, hit rate or, you know, home run rate or something. So we can kind of have, like, velocity is maybe the best example of a thing that can stabilize very quickly because there's only one variable. And then you have some kind of like the plate discipline type stats that generalize, generally stabilize a little bit quicker because it's generally just pitcher and catcher and, uh, you know, a little bit of... uh you know, maybe some weather factors depending on the run environment of the game or something. But those are more diminished. They don't have a lot of fielder variables in there. And then you have, like, the results ones, which once you include the, the ball being caught or not caught by an outfielder, now you've got a ton of variables and a ton of noise, and it takes much longer to, to strip that out and find the signal. Now, I noticed you, uh, you, you obviously cite um, both the Steamer and Zips projections, uh, which are hosted at, at Fangraphs. And um, you also – we now have uh, rest of season – uh, rest of season projections for both those systems. We do, and it's it's. It, I will say I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it is always sort of an interesting relationship. And of course, a number of my posts um, concern like you know steamer zips directly. Uh, you certainly cite them quite a bit. They are still the. I think the the like the precise algorithms themselves are are still sort of, are still uh, proprietary. I mean that's 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 the thing we to say right. That's a truth. Yeah, I mean right. We don't have a full published zips. Uh, methodology on the site anywhere. Dan Zborski uses them to help, uh, make his living by, uh, you know, selling the, the Zips projections and writing articles about them to ESPN and other places. Um, so right, he's not gonna open source the model and say, here's my projection system, feel free and recreate it and make me useless. Uh, but at the same time, <laughs> I think we do have some open source projection systems. Marcel is probably the most famous that Tom Tango has created. Uh, and I think most, what we've seen is that most of these projection systems do basically all the same thing or mostly similar things. And they're really trying to make improvements on the margins. So like Steamer kind of rose to prominence when they incorporated fastball velocity into its pitcher projections, which people weren't doing before, uh, because we didn't have pitch FX data until like 2008 or 2007, but really reliable until 2008. So once they started incorporating velocity in, they started crushing everybody else in pitcher projections, and then everyone else was like, ah, we should put velocity into our projections, and everyone came along and, and caught up. And so um, I think generally we can say that we're pretty confident that most of these projection systems that have been you know, tested repeatedly over the years uh, all come to mostly the same conclusions. They're all doing basically the same thing. So even if we don't know exactly what Zips is doing, we can make a pretty good guess at it based on what we know Marcel is doing and the fact that Marcel and Zips get mostly the same results. Right, and there's something fascinating about about obs- observing the rest of season projections because you get to see um, some sort of empirically based results 
or empirically based projection systems and what they're doing with the information in real time, essentially. Yeah. I think I think it's I think it's Zips that I've noticed. Um, you could help me out here. Is is particularly aggressive with Babbit figures? I think for for base for batters. Yeah. So one thing I've actually talked to Dan Zimborski about this because I've noticed this previously as well. I think I noticed this maybe a couple of years ago when I, I sent him a note. And he said that based on his research, uh, Babbitt is actually fairly sticky in season, stickier than you would think, uh, to the point where if a guy was running a 380 Babbitt in April, uh, it's not that he's going to keep doing that. But if he was a 280 career Babbitt guy, um, and you're like, well, we only have one month of data, we're going to regress that way back and make it like a 282 or 285 or something where you slightly increased it. But according to Dan's research, and I think he's backed this up with, uh, evidence to support his claim uh, is that maybe you'd even push it to 300 at that point. Like the in-season small sample uh, number of BABIP is actually, for a hitter, more sticky than you would suspect to the point. It probably has to do with health is, is the best guess is that, um, you know, if a guy, especially on the negative side of things, if the guy's running a 210 BABIP for a month, it's much more likely that he has a leg problem or he's not hitting the ball very hard uh, or he's doing something that is... Uh, more likely to cause him to significantly underperform his preseason projection. You're not expecting him to keep doing 210 or 220 or whatever this outlier number is, but you move the projection for Babbitt more than you might think based on the number of trials. Right. So, so we could to to rephrase that. It's we can maybe put a little bit more faith than we might have previously thought in an outlier uh, Babbitt figure. For hitters, yeah. For hitters, pitchers, it's still pretty pretty random. Yeah, and that's that's interesting. And I, I know that in your in your post, you mentioned Miguel Cabrera, and, and there are of course questions about his health. But Miguel Cabrera has, uh, well, he's already he's already uh, doing pretty well for himself. And part of yeah. that has been a 500 uh, BABIP figure. Yeah. And then if you look at the for him, <clears throat> I, I haven't uh, previously inspected this, but his preseason projection, courtesy Zips. Uh, was 330 BABIP, and now he already has a 338 figure, which is higher. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, one of the things that maybe is another unfortunate side effect of good research, obviously the we th- we're big fans of the defensive independent pitching metric and FIP and those kinds of uh, concepts of not necessarily penalizing pitchers for uh, all the hits they give up that uh, their defenders had some impact on. But at the same time, I think people have kind of over- taken that and said BABIP is his luck. And so especially with the hitter side, that's not really true. Uh, there's a lot more variance in true talent hitter BABIP than there is in true talent pitcher BABIP. And a guy like Miguel Cabrera, who's on a 350 or 360 career BABIP, isn't fast. He's doing that by hitting the crap out of the ball. Yeah, he hits it and really hard. Yeah. He hits it really hard and makes it hard to catch. And so I think what we see with Miguel Cabrera having a running a 500 BABIP the last week, it's probably not that he, I mean, he, He's not going to keep that up, but it wasn't because he was, you know, dropping a bunch of bloops in or defenders just fell down trying to catch the ball. He just hit the ball really hard for a week, and the fact that he hit the ball really hard for a week tells us he's more likely to keep hitting the ball hard than we would have thought a week ago. Yeah, yeah and you know what's really interesting is I, I think I was discussing this maybe – it was either with Sullivan or, or, or Kyle McDaniel, but it was the idea that – so you have a couple of different – I mean, Miguel Cabrera has hit a lot of home runs, right? There, there are two different reasons why a guy who hits a lot of home runs should maybe have a lower BABIP than you would expect. One of them is uh, because he's probably trying to hit more fly balls, and fly balls are easier to catch. And we've seen that for a long time, I think, with Ian Kinsler. I don't know what his BABIP figure was last year, but for a long time, Ian Kinsler would hit a bunch of home runs, but he had a, a, a super fly ball uh, orientation as a, as a batter, and... Um, and he always had low BABIPs, even though he had those high home runtos. Uh, I think Edwin Encarnacion and Jose Batista have the same 
same thing. And in fact, it might have been a conversation about those two, how that came up. The other thing is, th- here's another reason why they have low babips is because the balls that those guys hit the hardest don't count. Right, they go over yeah. the fence, right? <laughs> right. And yeah. so if they hit them poorly or not as hard, then it's not going over the fence and it's probably easier to catch, which relates to the first point. Yeah, I mean, I think a great example of this over the first week is Joey Votto. So he's hit three home runs uh, in his first six games, which is pretty good, especially if considering he only hit six all of last year. I mean, he only played 60 games last year, but, you know, he's hit three home runs for Joey Votto in a week is a notable accomplishment because he's not necessarily a 40-home run guy. Uh, but he has no doubles, right? So all three of Joey Votto's well-hit balls mm-hmm. went over the fence last week. And right. he's running a 313 Babbitt, which Votto's traditionally a very high Babbitt guy, like a 350, 360, like Miguel Cabrera. He hits a lot of line drives. So his Babbitt is down, but part of that is because all three of his balls that could have been doubles ended up on the wrong side of the fence. They don't count in his Babbitt, where if he would have hit maybe two doubles and one home run, he would have a 350 or 360 Babbitt like we'd expect, uh, just because of the kind of the way his extra base hits, um shook out. And right, so right, right. Yeah, the distribution. Especially in, yeah, yeah. yeah, the distribution of them. And in small samples especially, we'll see weird things like that where, you know, a bat can fluctuate quite a bit if you were lucky enough to hit a home run instead of a double. Right. And I think that, uh, I think, isn't uh, Dexter Fowler, I mean, this is just sort of, I guess the, the instructive thing about early season numbers is that they can sometimes paint the most extreme versions of things that even by the end of the season, are, are, you know, they're true to a less extreme degree. Um, but I think Dexter Fowler, oh no, it wasn't him. It was someone else. He, he had like, um, five walks, five strikeouts. And Erismendi er- Alcantara. Oh yes, that's right. Erismendi yeah. Alcantara, right. Same yeah. team. Both, uh, both, both, both need to eat a little bit. <laughs> both could really use a meal. Yeah. Uh, so Eris, I think it was like he had basically a 300 OBP. Yeah. Uh, 30% walk rate, 30% strikeout rate, zero BAPIP. Yeah. Yeah. In 17 plate appearances, which is, you know, notable. None, none of that will happen. No. Uh, none of those things of will, will continue happening. But, it's but I all... do think, right. I mean, the, the point is, you know, like you see some things that maybe, so like one thing we know about Erzmendi Alcantara from his minor league is he does draw some walks, right? So like, uh, one of the things that has been researched and shown throughout in the recent history, at least, is that walks don't really translate that well from the minor leagues to the major leagues. So this is a skill that we had some maybe concern about with all countries. The little guy doesn't have a lot of power. Uh, our pitcher's actually going to pitch around this guy in order to let him draw walks, which he did in the minor leagues. Uh, the fact that he was able to draw five and, you know, whatever, 12 plate appearances in the major leagues suggests that it's not uh, entirely, or it's slightly more, because I want to phrase this the right way, yeah. we, don't, we don't want people overreacting to the fact that he drew five walks in a week. But it's now slightly more likely than it was a week ago that Alcantara is going to be able to draw walks in the major leagues, given that he's shown some ability to do it even while he's not hitting. Right. Now let's talk about um, uh, let's talk about an, another another player in these terms, and that would be uh, Masahiro Tanaka. Yep. Um, I think the last time we had spoken, he had just made his first start, and it was not a rousing success. Um, and he has, in the meantime, made his second start. Which was even worse. And it was, right, it was, well, it was better in terms of run prevention. But worse in terms of everything else. Everything else, right. And, um, but although I think his fastball, now he was throwing harder, I think, right? I think he averaged like 91. Uh, so, I, I mean, if you look at the pitch of X velocity, I think what we've seen is, is he's not down nearly as much as he was at the end of spring training, and maybe not as much as we expected, but he is down slightly. I think if you look at, like, his, across the board, he's down like maybe like half a mile an hour over last year or something, which is normal for April, 
you know, we generally see pitchers ramp up velocity as the season goes on. So we're not seeing this dramatic velocity decline from Tanaka that maybe we thought we were going into the season, but we are seeing um, significantly worse results and, you know, significantly worse uh, plate discipline indicators, uh, especially on, like, if you look at um, the, the number of pitches he's thrown in the strike zone, which is already very low because he throws so many splitters out of the zone that people chase. I think last year he was at 45% pitches in the zone. This year he's at 42%, which is almost unsustainably low to the point where people are just going to stop swinging, which Isn't is a little also- bit. Hasn't Zimmerman done some work with uh, the relationship between yep. zone percentage and likely injury? Yeah, so that's part of his injury predictor is uh, a significant decrease in zone percentage, and Tanaka has had that already. Uh, and we're seeing a significant uptick in uh, in-zone contact rate, which I think last year Tanaka was one of the best for starting pitchers, and this year is pretty mediocre. Uh, as I think uh, Dan uh, Rosenheck and some others have shown, um, in-zone contact rate is a really good proxy for stuff. Again, we're dealing with 10 or 11 innings, so you don't want to overreact to, um, you know, two starts, essentially, especially one of them against the Red Sox, which is a pretty good hitting team. But this is an indicator that can stabilize quicker than others that suggests that maybe his stuff has declined. Um, and if his command has declined and his stuff has declined, uh, Tanaka's unlikely to pitch as well as he did last year, which we, you know, kind of expected heading into the year. In fact, he was trying to pitch through a, a a little bit of an elbow problem. We didn't expect him to be as good as he was last year. We, sh- again, don't have enough data to say that, like, Tanaka's screwed and, and he's definitely, you know, needs surgery right now. But there are indicators that would uh, suggest that this is maybe not going to go as well as the Yankees had hoped. As for finding a, um, a cause for that, I guess, that relationship between Zone, per- zone percentage for a pitcher, and then the fact that it might um, it might indicate injury. Do you think that that is a do you think that uh, that is a, a question of a pitcher either a losing his command, or do you think it's that he knows he doesn't have the same sort of stuff, so he avoids the zone? Yeah, I think it's the latter. I okay. think uh, I mean it, it, certainly it could be a mix of both, and there's probably a little bit of the former in there. But I think the pitchers know what they're throwing, and mm-hmm. when they are not confident in what they're throwing, which is happens if you lose some movement or you lose some velocity, and you don't have what you thought you had previously, you begin to nibble, and that's you just move further from the middle of the plate, and you try and pitch on the corners. And I think that's kind of what we're seeing from Tanaka right now is he doesn't have the, the ability to throw his fastball by people. Uh, as well as he did last year, and so he's, you know, throwing more splitters, throwing more off-speed stuff, and he's nibbling on the corners. And uh, if if you're doing that for a significant period of time, uh, it's probably an indicator that you don't trust your stuff as much. And we, I, I was also noticing that his his um, ability to strand runners has, has not been particularly good. And then because um, it's some, he's got like something like a an un, in a, uh, obscenely low left on base rates, below 50 percent, and usually yeah. league average is about 80, right? He had, like, a really terrible first inning against the Blue Jays. Uh, not first inning, but he had one terrible inning against the Blue Jays where they, you know, just shellacked him for four or five runs or something. And so basically all of his uh, problems in that first start came in one inning, which right. is not not so good for your strand rate. No, right. And 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 then I also noticed, though, that uh, despite the fact that his defense independent numbers are fantastic, um, just like they were pretty good last year, CC Sabathia has also allowed a bunch of runs and also it has a lot to do well, it, it, he has a high left on uh, or lower left on base rate than you would assume, uh, but he also is throwing less hard. And I'm curious, do you think if there is any sort of because we've talked about this multiple times now yeah. with the decline of Roy Halladay, with the decline yeah. of Tim Lincecum, with the decline yeah. of Justin Verlander, maybe 
that you that you start to see you don't necessarily see it in the defense independent numbers but you see, you see it in the run prevention numbers and it might be tied to velocity do you think there's a relationship possibly between uh between strand rate and and velocity or diminished stuff etc didn't we talk about this last week i, I feel no, like we didn't I, we didn't bring strand rate into it and i was wondering uh, if it was visible in strand rate i guess it would uh, have to be to a certain degree because you're talking about chaining at a, at so, level. so strand rate is basically like the uh another way of saying the effects of babip uh or home run rate so like yeah, the, guess, the yeah. way to run a, a very low strand rate is to give up a lot of home runs with guys on base uh or to give up a lot of hits like those are the two ways you can do it essentially uh or you can just suck with runners in scoring position in general uh like Javier Vasquez did for his entire career but generally it's uh, uh low strand rate is extremely highly correlated to a high babbit or a high home run rate uh and Sabathia and a lot of these guys you mentioned Tim Lincecum have had these problems where they're giving up a lot of home runs or they're giving up a lot of hits and I do think uh as we I'm pretty sure we discussed last week this is a potential sign of injury if a guy loses a lot of velocity and starts getting uh, giving up a lot of hits and a lot of home runs, he might be able to still figure out how to avoid walks uh, and get some strikeouts. But if he's getting crushed all the time, my guess is when we finally get you know good batted ball data, this will probably show us that uh, you know these types of pitchers were giving up harder contact than they were previously. Okay. Um, so yeah, and that's happening to Sabathia. Is he? What, what, so what's going to happen with the Yankees' rotation then? They sound like they're in trouble. I think they are in a good amount of trouble. If, if Sabathia and Tanaka are both not, you know, even capable mid-rotation starters, uh, then you're looking at, a, you know, Michael Pineda, uh, Chris Capuano when he comes back healthy, Yvonne Nova maybe, uh, Adam, Warren? Adam, Adam Warren, who's an okay fifth starter maybe if his uh, stuff that played up in the bullpen doesn't fall off too far. Um, that's not a good rotation, especially for a team that's not going to score a lot of runs. They should use Shane Green. They traded Shane Green, <laughs> unfortunately for them. Yeah, they could they could use him right now though. Yeah. That'd be good for them. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Well, to this point about uh, stranding runners or not, is there a standard penalty uh, for a pitcher working uh, with runners on base slash from the stretch? Is there a penalty in terms of uh, run prevention? Is there a penalty in terms of uh, velocity, et cetera? So pitching from the stretch, no. We can basically find no evidence that pitching from the stretch uh, significantly weakens your stuff, and there are a decent amount of pitchers uh, who are now pitching from the stretch full-time and doing so quite well. And I think most of the research done shows that there's not actually a lot of evidence that the wind-up is particularly helpful. I mean, people are doing it generally because that's how they were taught to do it, and once you kind of have a you know muscle memory, there's no real reason to change it. So it's not that all these guys should just abandon the wind-up immediately, but there's not a lot of evidence that the windup is particularly beneficial. Uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if in the future we trained a generation of pitchers just to pitch out of the stretch for the whole time, because it certainly helps with holding on runners. Um, but I do think that there's plenty of evidence that shows pitching with men on base is uh, significantly problematic. And and I think the the average increase in Woba uh, for no runners on versus like a guy on first base is like 10 or 15 points or something, which uh, you know can add up, uh, especially if you put a lot of guys on base. Um, part of that is probably uh, poor defensive alignment, where the first baseman has to hold a runner on and leaves a bigger hole at the first base. Uh, or if you have guys in double play position, um, you know they're not aligned uh, as efficiently as they would to make plays in the hole. Um, so you have you know positioning issues that probably cause uh, pitchers to perform worse. You have the distraction element of you know picking off and keeping a, uh, an eye on the runner on base. Uh, and then you also have just a selection bias issue, where guys who put guys on base are generally worse pitchers than guys who don't. Uh, no, we we um, 
uh, bring this sort of uh, foolish circle, uh, you you invoked Joe Kelly at the uh, sort of the beginning of this discussion. I wrote about him for this afternoon. Joe Kelly seemed to throw harder uh, in a start, or alternatively, if there's a miscalibration, he at least threw he threw his slider slower. Or there was a separation between the two. He got a lot of swinging strikes on the slider, um, which which a person could do if it's if that is coming up in relief against a harder fastball or not. Yeah, I think uh, someone in the comments made an okay point, uh, or maybe even a good point, uh, that what this followed a 19 inning game in which the Yankees had finished facing a knuckleballer. <laughs> so I think we do know that like uh, there's a knuckleball hangover effect that's been shown. Uh, so going from uh, Stephen Wright to Joe Kelly might have had an impact, a positive impact on Joe Kelly's performance that wasn't Joe Kelly. Uh, and also playing 19 innings the night before uh, may have had a, you know, a tiring effect on the Yankee lineup. So I would be more hesitant to draw conclusions based on Kelly's swinging strike rate and the results that he got mm-hmm. versus just the fact that he was throwing his fastball harder. And it's trended upwards pretty significantly over the last couple of years. I think with St. Louis, he was 93-94, and in Boston, he's been 95-96. Uh, those two ticks that he's added can't hurt. I mean, right. I guess they could hurt if they cause his arm to blow up. But if he can stay healthy, uh, that's helpful. He's not a, he's not a huge guy, I don't think. He's pretty thin. Yeah. 6'1", yeah. 175. That's not a huge person. Yeah. He's, he's a skinny guy. Yeah, but he's good to be velocity. Uh, here's the last thing I wanted to ask you. I think you've nearly fulfilled your obligation. I was thinking about this over the weekend, um, cause I was looking at ways that one might translate Pitching grades, such as those. So translating the pitching grades for batters, or sorry, so translating the, the tool grades for batters into uh, major league stats is not a crazy thing to do. In fact, you know, a number of them are already correlated directly with major league stats, yeah. right? So like a 50 hitter is like a 260 batting average. Scouts use that actual yeah. equation when they're looking at guys. Home yeah. runs, there's a, there are home run ranges for each grade. Right. And and you know what? Batting average and um and home run totals, you know, over a full season together, that's a lot. that's if you know those two things about a batter, you probably know what he's worth. Give or take, you know how many runs he's worth. Uh offensively maybe. Offensively, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 right. yeah that's what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, it tells you a lot about his offensive production. Yeah. Pitching grades are strange though, right? Cuz it's like here's a fastball which is, you know, uh that has the closest tie to an objective measure, which is velocity. But then, like, a grade on a curveball or a grade on a changeup or, you know, or even command, those are all sort of mysterious. Yeah. So I was looking into it, and I was coming up with some translations for those things. And I think it's not a bad system. It's, you know, it's a, uh, it could be a potentially useful tool. But I was thinking about uh, there are some guys who, if you, if you put grades, if you had, like, the traditional grading system, if they were 18-year-olds or 22-year-olds pitching in the minor leagues or amateur as amateurs – they would not profile very, very strong. Of course, Mark Burley is a, you know, an example like that. But I was even thinking among elite pitchers, if you, if, if you were to see Adam Wainwright pitching in a, in a, in a, in a minor league game, except for the fact that he's getting everybody out, would you, if you think about it in the most traditional way, would you think that he was going to be as good as he is? Well, I did see Adam Wainwright pitch in a minor league game. He was actually in the Brave system, uh, coming through the Carolina League, and I used to go to a ton of minor league games back before I had a child and a wife. Mm. Uh, and so I saw Adam Wainwright pitch in the Brave system several times, I think when he was with Myrtle Beach and they came to Winston-Salem. 
Uh, and I remember watching him and thinking, ah, oh, this guy's really good. <laughs> All right. A, well, but he had a really nasty curveball. Uh, and he was a first round pick. And so, you know, you go in with some bias because you know that the team already thought highly of him because he was a first round pick. And then you see this like 12-6 curveball and a pretty good changeup. And you're like, yeah, it was pretty good. Well, look at, at the current version of, of Adam Wainwright. Sit, I mean, he doesn't even throw four seam fastball really. Uh, he throws a, a, like a cutter that sits at like 88, 89. Yeah. And he doesn't have a changeup. Uh, right. He, yeah. He, I mean, he now relies very heavily on his breaking ball. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a, I'm seeing if a guy, if you, if there's a pitcher, he throws 88 to 90 and he doesn't have a changeup. That, usually that description for a, for an amateur or a minor league pitcher, that does not equal first round draft pick. Yeah, right. Well, I mean, Wainwright's, what, 33 and he's had multiple surgeries? I mean, I think, you know, that's one of the tricky things is like you don't necessarily equate an 18 year old's, uh, stuff to a 33 year old stuff because the 33 year old is going to have significant advantages in experience and learning how to pitch, uh, that the 18 year old's not gonna have, right? And you expect stuff decline. So if you see an 18-year-old that's throwing 88, by the time he's 33, he's going to be throwing like 73. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I guess that's, yeah, that's obviously true. It's just, uh, it's it stuck out to me because I, um, of course, you know, he's had some fantastic seasons. Yeah. I mean, I think your general point is that like the translation from stuff to performance at the major league level on the pitching side is not nearly as strong as it is for hitting tools, mm-hmm. uh, which is true. And I think, you know, there are plenty of guys who are, um, uh, good pitchers who don't have top shelf stuff. Right. So. Yeah, and Adam Wainwright's one of them. Hmm. Uh, can got? we pause? For, yeah, I think my like exterminator might be here early. I told him to come at two thirty. Hold on. Oh yeah, let's check it out. I would like to meet your exterminator. Yeah, I actually have, I have to go. Uh, can I call you back when he's gone? No, you could be done. That's fine. Okay. Well, I, we wanted to talk about the other thing, right? So. Oh yeah, we'll talk about that. But let's for the moment say goodbye to the listeners. All right. Goodbye, listeners. All right. That has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs and Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. See ya. Bye, Dave.